Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Joining me um, from via Zoom is my friend Ben Lee. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me. Your given name is Benjamin. Should we call you Benjamin or Ben in the podcast? Either's fine. Let's, let's do Ben. But if you if you prefer Benjamin, that's great too. Um, well, I'll probably call you Ben most of the time. Listeners, um, okay. Ben is um, just finishing up his third year of law school at Harvard, and he's off to uh, be a law clerk for a judge in Louisville, Kentucky. We're recording this in May, just after I think you did all your finals. Is that right, Ben? That's right. That, how does that feel to be done with everything for three years of law school? It feels good. It's It's strange. I'm, I'm not used to not having a, a next year of school to look forward to. So it's going to require some adjustments, I think. Um, listeners, I, uh, my wife and I have been friends with Ben's parents. We were neighbors about 25 years ago in Sandy, Utah. And then I think the chronologic order is your parents left for a job in Virginia. You were born in Virginia and so I don't think we've actually, our kids ever lived next to you. We have kids Ben's age. Ben, you are how old? I'm 27. 27, but um, sure appreciate your parents, Tom and Kim. And we've had your brother, Jake, on the podcast way back in episode 55. That was like 500 episodes. So maybe <laughs> in another 500 episodes, we'll have another Lee on the podcast. But um Listeners, we're going to talk about a book that Ben wrote during law school. It's called Pride and Paradox, Exploring Christ-Like Humility and the Struggle to Defeat Pride. And this is a terrific book. I don't get a chance to read all the books before an author comes on the podcast, but I've read most of this book. It's a serious book about an important subject that's incredibly well-written. And um, I'm going to finish it. I'm going to get a hard copy of the book and read it and mark it. It's a terrific book. And the purpose of this podcast is for Ben to give an overview of the book so that you'll read it and that you will share it with others. And it can help bring more understanding in our faith community. Um, it's Ben won't want to hear this very much, but it's incredibly remarkable that you've written this book during Harvard Law School, Ben. Most people don't go to law school, and then write a serious book um, while they're in law school. So maybe the first question is, what's the spiritual, I think you had a spiritual prompting to do this. Just give our listeners the backstory of why you decided to write this book. Sure. Yeah, I, I was at the end of my first year of law school uh, taking exams, and I, uh, for the first time in probably a, a week or two, found some time to read the scriptures. and. I opened up to Matthew chapter 26 and I read the verse where Jesus uh, tells the, the apostles, one of you will betray me. And each of the apostles, you know, instead of accusing anyone else, looks inward and says, Lord, is it I? And something about that verse just really struck a chord with me. I think it made me reflect on what I'd been doing all year and how I'd been entirely focused on myself and how if I'd been put in that position, my first instinct for sure would have been not, not me, you know? And so I, I thought really hard. I stayed up most of the night that night, just thinking and writing about, you know, what does it, what did these apostles possess that I don't possess? And I came away thinking they were humble. They had humility and I don't have humility yet. And 
that kind of, there was just a strong urge to understand what humility means. And it really didn't go away until I finished the book a couple months ago. It took about two years of research and writing. And every time I, you know, got some free time, my mind just went to, you know, what is, what is humility? What does it mean to be humble? Like Jesus Christ is humble. And, um, it, it was a very strange thing. I, I never planned on, you know, writing a book, especially during law school. I, I, I don't really know anything. So that, that part was, was strange kind of dealing with, with imposter syndrome the whole time. And, and I've never really written anything. So I, but I just kind of trusted that there was something about this, uh, this pull inside of me to understand what humility is and to write about it that was good. And so I, yeah, just hope that um, the book be, can be useful to, to someone. Um, I asked you this before we went live and I loved your answer so much. I want to make sure it's on the podcast, but tell our listeners who you hope reads this book. Yeah, I, I think I would love for young members of the church to read the book. Like if, if myself from five years ago, 20, 22 year old me could read the book, I think it would be useful to him. I think I wrote it especially for young single members of the church, because I think we, we have a lot of challenges and um, the older we get, I think life gets complicated and we see that the gospel is pretty complicated and um, you know, not really for me to judge whether what I've said is all that, all that useful, but I definitely did study and pray really, really hard and did my very best to find the truths that I, that I thought would be useful and present them in the most uh, compelling way that I could. Um, I've, and we may get this later in the podcast listeners, but there's um, some really good things if you're working through um, a faith crisis potentially, or just needing a different framework to stay a sustained member of the church. You do some terrific things supporting our leaders, our church, our history. That's just in a way that is a way forward for some people that need perhaps a different way forward. Um, and I know that many of your age group is just aware of complicated historical stuff, complicated current issues, and sometimes needs a different way forward. Thought you did a great job on that. Um, yeah, even though Ben listeners talks about this as a book for his age group in the mid twenties, I I've learned a lot from reading this book. It's the kind of book I wish I had read five years ago or ten years ago. It's a terrific book. It's a it's a serious book. It's not just a casual book. It's a serious book, and I, I think you'll find it really helpful. Let's ask some questions just about um, the book. What is the definition of humility you arrived at? Yeah, so I I came away thinking that humility tells us the proper way we should approach different relationships, and pride is the improper way to approach those relationships. And so the the first is how do we approach our relationship to God? I think we should be submissive to God. That's that's kind of the the core of of humility is are you willing to submit to God's will? And then uh, second is our relationship to truth and to learning. And there, I think it's the same. It's, are we willing to submit to the truth? Are we seeking the truth instead of seeking our truth? Um, because if, if we, you know, if we assume that God exists, if we believe that God exists, I think that also means there is eternal truth that's out there to be learned. And so uh, we shouldn't be concerned with what we, 
what I've been want to be true, but what God will reveal to me as true. And then third is our relationship to other people. And I think we should approach our relationships to others the same way that, that Christ did. And that's being willing to submissively love and serve other people. Um, just like, you know, Jesus didn't put himself first. He put others first. And, and that category of our relationship to other people requires a bit more nuance because we, we certainly shouldn't um, submit to others if they will take advantage of us. And there's no per se requirement that, you know, I do what someone else wants me to do. We need to take care of ourselves. And um, I, I try to kind of detail how that, how that works. But um, we also have covenanted to, you know, suffer with those that suffer and bear one another's burdens. And I think that's kind of the core of, of our, um, the baptismal covenant and what it means to be humble in relation to, to other people is to, uh, to submissively serve and love them. Um, I love that. One of the things that, and maybe you're, I'm getting ahead of ourselves here is you talked about the, one of the beauties of our restored gospels, we have additional scripture. Um, yeah. And one of the challenges of that is perhaps if we have preset conclusions, we read the scriptures to sort of um, find content that backs up our point of view, and other yeah. people would, and I don't, I don't, and other people would maybe look for contents that backs up their point of view, and it's hard then to do what you say, Lord, is it I? Is there actually in humility? Do I have I held on to something? that even if I can sort of justify it through the scriptures may not be completely consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you want to expand on that more? Sure. Yeah. You, you probably said it better than I can, but um, I, I think the idea, I think that goes back to submitting to truth. So we, we can think of, we can make the truth fit into the box that we want it to fit in. We can accept different constraints and, and different ideologies and say, you know, this is where God needs to needs to fit in. And that could be reading scriptures. It could be different political ideas. It could be all kinds of different things. And we can make everything fit into the box that we want to fit it in, including God. We, we're, we make the truth in our own image and we make God in our own image. But I, I don't think that's right. I think what we need to do, and this is extremely difficult, it's been very difficult to me, but is humbly, submissively seek divine revelation, seek to understand the core principles of the gospel, and then let God build up our, our structure of faith bit by bit without forcing him into, you know, these boxes that we think he should fit into. Um, and, and for me, that's looked like kind of trying to push aside my, my political views, et cetera, and, and, and try to see um, God's love and God's truth uh, just for what it is. And I, I think that's, like I said, it, it's difficult to do and it's required me to kind of pare back my own, my own faith. I don't have as maybe as uh, huge of a structure of faith anymore, but what I do still have is really, really solid because it's based on um, one direct experience with, with God, with God answering my prayer and telling me that, that he loves me, that he cares about all of his children and that, you know, Jesus died for my sins. And also just my, I, I think, so that's, that's one tool we have is, is divine experience, direct experience with God. Another tool we have is our, our conscience and what, what is 
good and what is um yeah what what is right and so we we slowly uh build up from things from our direct experience with god and just try to do what's right and try to gain more light and bit by bit we can um we can understand more and more of god's truth and that's a slow but important process i love that it feels like we're not in a rush to get to the finish line the way you described that is to just be open to learning um we want to be certain in everything but i think you're helping us understand it's okay to not be certain um i yeah. like an elder uchtdorf quote you know how often has the holy spirit tried to tell us something we couldn't get past the massive iron gate of what we thought we already knew and yeah. um i i and that we're just continually learning and it's through the things that we're taught to learn from personal revelation. But it does take a bit of humility to be willing to, I've tried to do this in my old age and in certain social issues, just to be willing to learn um, and, yeah. and, and admit that I was wrong with some prior um, conclusions. Talk more about how pride is the opposite of humility in every way. I think that's one of the points of your book. Yeah. So, so, one one way you can look at it is you can go back to kind of the definition. So if if humility means we're willing to submit to God and to the truth and to submissively love and serve others, uh, pride is the opposite. So pride means placing your will above God's. It means dishonestly or strategically using or ignoring the truth, uh, and it's putting yourself above others. So one one kind of rule of thumb that I've used for myself to detect my own pride, which happens every day, <laughs> um, is am I doing something to lift myself up and pushing others down? If if a comment or an action that I that I do is ever um, pushing other people down in order to lift myself up in any way, I try to stop doing that thing and and, and try to try to fix it because I, I don't think that's how that's how Christ lived. I, I think his example is the opposite. It's um, lifting other people up regardless of what it does to him. It's, um, you know, him being on the cross and, and uh, looking down and saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Other people are pushing him down. They're trying to end his life. They're trying to kill him. And he's saying, no, like, let, let me do anything I can. Father, forgive them. Let me try to lift these people up to get closer to you and closer to me. Um, and that, it turns out that's really hard. That's really hard to do. Uh, I, one, one result of this whole process has been that I see my own pride with increasing clarity. And that can be uncomfortable. Um, but I, I think that's kind of the gospel. You know, it's it's being willing to be uncomfortable if, if that discomfort is helping us get closer to, to Christ and, and become the kinds of, the kinds of people that, that God wants us to become. Wow. That's great. Um, question, why God, truth and others? Yeah, I, 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 I think the reason I needed to write a book and not just read someone else's and internalize it is because I didn't feel like there was a, definition of humility that I could apply to all the different situations. How, how does um, intellectual humility and humility with um, our relationship with God and like being a know-it-all and being annoying 
with other people and, and the pride that ruins relationships. How do those all say, how do those things all fit together? Um, I spent a long time just, just thinking about that. And I came up with this definition. I don't know if it, it's useful to other people, but it's been really useful to me. And that if you, if you break it down into those three, into relationship with God, relationship to truth and relationship to others, um, it really kind of helps you see, okay, where am I being prideful in these different areas and how can I, uh, develop more, more humility. It's just a framework that I've found really useful. Um, submission to truth is an interesting idea, Ben, can you flesh that out and what that means and why it's, you think it's important? Yeah, I, I think we, um, I think we touched on this a bit. So, uh, submitting to truth, like I said, is you're not, you're not forcing the truth to fit into your own box that you think it must fit into. You're not making the truth um, submit to you, but you are a servant of the truth. You're trying to find it and then you're trying to build your life around whatever whatever the truth is. Um, and and like we, yeah, I, I think I'll leave it at that. I think that's, that's probably as good as I can do on that. I like that. And I'm drawn to quotes that kind of that communicate listeners what Ben's teaching us and I don't know if I can paraphrase. There's this line out of Beauty and the Beast. Um, Learning you were wrong um, is one of the phrases in that song. And, I, you know, that can kind of be a startling thing to learn you were wrong. But I love just opening the possibility for all of us. Is, and I'm trying to do that as part of being humility is learning I may have been wrong or currently wrong with some of the things that I have come to conclude and recognizing that incorrect conclusion may keep me from being like Christ, may keep me from being humble, but also maybe most importantly, keep me from lifting the burdens of others and perhaps adding to the burdens of others with opinions I've formed that may not be consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I think one of the challenges being in a restored truth with, you know, everything that's been restored as part of the restoration is culturally, I sometimes worry that then because we have the true church, it's harder to look inward and say, well, you know, are there things within that framework that where I still have got it wrong as an individual and things that I need to improve on? So I like what you're sharing. Any more thoughts on that concept, Ben? Yeah, no, I, I think you, I think you put it really well. And, and like the older, the older you get and the more you learn about the gospel, you realize that there are hard truths that every person will need to grapple with. And, and one way to deal with it is to push those truths aside. You know, you, you learn about Joseph Smith's polygamy, for example, you can take the stance that I don't, I don't think that happened uh, and, and move on. But, but you're just, you're taking something that, you know, at least I, I think that there's good evidence that that is true, you know, and, and you're pushing it aside and your, your faith is weaker because of that, because I, I don't believe that God ever, um, asked us to lie. Like, I, I don't think we need to ignore truth. Truth does come from God and, and truth doesn't have an obligation to be easy to swallow. It doesn't have an obligation to be pleasant, but uh, you know, all truths can be reconciled. 
And so if the gospel is true, and I believe that it is, uh, we don't need to be afraid of anything. We don't need to run away from, from hard things like, you know, Joseph Smith's polygamy. We just need to learn as much truth as we can about those things, learn as much truth about the rest of the gospel and see how those pieces fit together. Um, and I think we need to do, do so uh, prayerfully. And there, there's an analogy that sometimes I, that I use in the book that um, sometimes when we learn these bad truths, we, uh, not bad truths, the truths that can be, can be difficult, we shut off the rest of the light that we have and only focus on this one new truth and it makes it impossible for everything to fit together. It's like going into the deepest part of the cave and turning off your flashlight and then saying, I'm, I'm lost. You know, that's when we need, we need light the most. That's when we most need to be uh, living up to our covenants to follow Jesus Christ and, and studying the gospel and, and seeking divine inspiration to know how this all works, because it's only through the grace of God and the light of Christ that we can, we can see how this all, how this all fits together. Um, but what, what I've seen in myself and in others is sometimes when things get hard, that's when we shut off our, our access to God's light. And then we, we again, throw up our hands and say like this, this just doesn't work. This doesn't fit together. That's a great segment. Let, let's say I'm your, um, in your YSA warden. I had a chance to attend your YSA warden late May, March. Sure. Our, our daughter um, attends your YSA ward and um, love being in your YSA ward. YSA ward's just, um, I just love the conversations and the lessons and the discussions and the spirit I feel there. But let's just say I'm a friend of you and your YSA ward and say, Ben, I'm having a real hard time reconciling our church history. I, I believe in the restored doctrine that came through the prophet Joseph Smith, but I'm uncomfortable with polygamy. Um, I'm uncomfortable with what our apostles have said. They seem to have said, con, 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 I can't say that word, con, contradictory things about things throughout. Um, some apostles have said some things and later apostles have said different things about the same topics. And I'm just having a hard time uh, reconciling all of that. And I, and Ben, I've kind of come from a world where everything was really fit together and just this nicely, this nice sugar, kind of sugar coated story. And as I just looked a little deeper, Ben, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a more, it's a complicated story with some real warts. Um, yeah. I want to believe Ben, but I'm having a hard time just reconciling this. I'm sure you've had these discussions. So Talk to yeah. me, talk to our listeners, what, how you navigate this and what advice you'd give. And some of this is in the book listeners. Yeah. I, uh, I, whatever I say on the spot probably won't be as good as what I, you know, took months to, <laughs> to, to painstakingly write, but I'll, I'll try my best. I, I think that the first step is to evaluate your premises. Meaning if, if you come into that, uh, issue of thinking, everything an apostle says must be eternal truth. You're going to run into intractable issues almost immediately. And, and I think, you know, maybe that's a bit controversial to say for some people, but I think it's just self-evident that there are apostles who have said things that can't be squared with things that other apostles have said. And I think that means it's, it's possible if not, I, I think it's actually certain that apostles have said things that are not, are not true. And this is where it gets really dicey because that opens up the possibility of, you know, every, every person can just interpret the gospel 
as they want to, they can take the scriptures that fits within their picture and, and ignore the other ones and take the apostle statements that they like and ignore the other ones. And, um, but, but then I, I think the way to navigate these issues is through the attitude of submissiveness towards God and submissiveness towards truth, understanding that God can answer prayers. Um, so you start with what you believe in the most. You, you start with, go back to, to first principles and think, do I, if I had experiences that uh, assure me that God is there, um, that he loves me, that Jesus is the Christ, that the Book of Mormon is true. Um, for me, those are kind of the core tenets. And if, you know, other people might not have experiences that, that give them kind of those, those, uh, that foundation. And if so, that's okay. Um, you can, you just build on whatever foundational um, experiences and beliefs you have. And yeah, you, you, you prayerfully slowly have conversations with people and, and study the gospel. And uh, if the pieces don't fit together, there's, there's different possibilities. Either, either they don't fit together or there's something in the way that you're trying to make them fit together that just doesn't work, which again, like the easiest example is, uh, you know, maybe, maybe that apostle wasn't doing the right thing there. Maybe, maybe they did make a mistake or maybe God's will has changed. Maybe that was permissible back then for whatever reason. And, and none of these things will ever really have a super clear, maybe not none of them. It's, I guess it's, it's certainly possible that you won't find a clear, uh, resolution because at, at some level you always get to the, the reality. We don't know the mind of God is there than our ways. And that, um, you also never know the mind of another person. You don't know, um, whether, you know, someone was a, a, an apostle in, in church history or whoever else was doing something for the right reason or the wrong reason. Or if, if there's a, an, an issue with church history, maybe there's, an account that's true, or maybe there's an account that's not true. It's, it's just, uh, it's really hard because there's so many moving parts, but what I always come back to is I, I couldn't look myself in the eye and deny the experiences with God that I've had, the experiences with the priesthood that I've had, um, with the book of Mormon. And so I'm, I'm willing to put some things that I don't a hundred percent understand on the back burner. And in the meantime, try to be better, try to be more like Christ, try to be more humble. And then hope that, you know, someday when I'm a better person and I've been granted more, more of God's light, I will kind of see that deep, dark part of the cave um, and, and how it all, how it all fits together. That's a terrific answer, Ben. And I love your desire to be humble in the whole process. And Sometimes when we hear some of this stuff, it causes us to think we know more or be unsettling. But I love the grace you're giving to others, our leaders, to hold on to what we know and to be humble enough just to say, you know, I need to work on my relationship with Christ and the things I know. Listeners, I look for sustainable ways forward for members of our church, and um, some are, are and I think we should just honor in people's individual paths as they're navigating complicated historical issues and complicated current issues and not sort of create any shame or 
you're the tares or you're on the slippery slope to apostasy or the questions you're asking you to lead you out of the church. I think some of that narrative is not helpful. I think it's helpful to have these kind of discussions and listen to really faithful men like Ben who are deeply committed to the church and deeply committed to finding a framework that works going forward and honor that framework. And perhaps even that framework as he's sharing it is helpful for you. Most people, I pulled this on Twitter. I said, if you're an active Latter-day Saint in the middle of a faith crisis, is your hope to stay in the church or leave the church? And 87% said, stay in the church. So um, I think most people want to find a way to reconcile these issues in a way that keeps them in the church. And, and often I felt, listeners, the tools to help someone join the church may not be the same tools to keep someone in the church. It may be a different set of tools, some of the things that you're teaching us and that your book really flushes out. So even if you're not in a faith crisis or looking for a different framework, listeners, you may enjoy reading that section of Ben's book. It may just give you more tools to help others um, as a parent, as a local leader, or even in your future journey. Um, so that was a really good segment. I, um, I'm going to go on unless you want to chime in on that. I'll ask the question. If you want to chime in, back, go back, you can. Um, you share a bunch of personal information in this, um, Ben. You're very brave. You're very vulnerable. Your generation's better at this. Stories about your struggles with anxiety, depression, breakups, helping a friend who was about to commit suicide. These are heavy and pretty vulnerable. Why did you take that? Why did you put that in the book? Yeah, I um, I originally had about 100 pages of just pure doctrinal analysis. Uh, and I, I looked at it and I read it and I thought these ideas are true, but nobody's going to want to read it. And it doesn't, even though the ideas were true, it didn't feel true reading it because it, it came off in a way that was me writing as if I understood things. And if I, as if I, um, exemplified them when I really don't. And so I, I felt Again, I just felt kind of pulled to to start writing about not just why these exam why these um, principles of humility are important, but how they've how I struggle with them and and how they've impacted my life. And when I did that, I I just started to see that you know even though I'm not that great of a writer, I, I looked back and and uh, read what I wrote, and I thought this feels true. This feels like something that could help someone. So I, yeah, I, I, I write a lot about all the, all the pain that I I've been through and, and pain that people around me have been through and, uh, um, how I really believe humility is, is the most powerful tool as powerful tools I can think of to alleviate pain in 2022 and, in, in the, you know, pandemic of mental health issues that we have, What's more powerful than than a person who's willing to suffer with someone else, willing to understand them, willing to engage in, you know, deep radical empathy, and um, I'm I'm not good at, at that at all. And and if you read the book, you'll see that most of the examples that I share from my life are things not to do. And when it when it is like, you know, here's something that I did good. It's it's pretty rare and, and that doesn't happen a lot, but just in those flashes of moments where I feel like I have been humble, um, like, like for example, the, the story of, of 
my friend who almost took his own life. It was such a beautiful, powerful experience to suffer with him. And it wasn't at all comfortable. It wasn't at all fun. Um, but I, I think that's what it means to, to strive to follow Christ is to do what he did in, in suffering with, with other people. And if I can share, uh, what that, what that feels like and how sometimes being a, being a disciple of Christ is both hard and, and beautiful at the same time. Um, yeah, maybe it can, it can, uh, help others to, to do the same. I think of our baptism covenant spin when you talk about that and you've got this vertical one part of it that goes upwards to God and it's commandment keeping and our yeah. relationship with God. And then we've got this one that goes sideways, horizontal to our our fellow human family. And I think that's, you know, when you talk about humility um, and sort of link that then with the ability to lift the burdens of others, that's a really good link there. and just. Um, and also being vulnerable. And if you're vulnerable, then people know you're a safe person to open up to. I've always felt our Puritan culture and our sometimes toxic perfectionistic culture, um, we're not very good at being vulnerable and being open with just... Uh, um, and so I think that then it allows you to mourn, bear, and comfort. But I've never thought as much until this podcast about humility and about how that's such an important christ-like attribute to then be able to help others um do you want to talk any more about you've done a good job on that but just any more on why the why being humble allows you then to bear more and comfort better is it because you see people better is because you're more open um to their individual journeys it's because you're more connected to christ and what he modeled and so you want to do what christ does just any more thoughts on that yeah, I, I think everything you, you said, and um, I mean, part of it's just your, if you're truly trying to submit to the truth and, and you're not trying to put the world into the all the small constraints and your first views of things, I think that allows you to engage in a type of empathy that can be really powerful in helping other people. Um, because at least for me, I think my, my first tendency when, when other people are going through hard things is I, I like to impose my own life on them and say, well, if I were in that position, I don't think that would be that hard. So, you know, they're probably okay, but I'm, I'm trying to learn to, you know, push that away and, and just really strive to understand what the truth is of what it's like to be that person. and. And like, like if you've never experienced anxiety or depression before, it's really, really hard to understand what that feels like. It's really, really hard to understand how debilitating that is and how it, it's not just you're yourself, but you're um, sad or whatever. It, it really changes your whole personality. It changes, you know, how you even feel about your own soul and I've just experienced a little bit of that. I, I probably haven't experienced the depths of, of what other people experience, but, but that sh first, that strong desire to submit to God's will and, and follow the commandments of loving one another. And second, the, the ability and desire to, to find and submit to the truth of what it's like to be another person. And then third, the, the willingness to kind of sit in, in pain 
with other people. I think there's this there's this really prevalent and pernicious idea that the gospel is all about making us happy, and and there's some truth to that. I think I think we're blessed when we do what God wants us to do. But um, again, I think that there's a contrast. There, there's a contradiction there between um, the gospel is there to make you happy and you know, take up your cross and follow him. And when those things conflict, I I think we should try to take up our cross. And uh, it's a, it's a beautiful, true, good thing to um, hurt with those that are with those that are hurting. But it does require deep humility on, on all the three levels that I've kind of broken humility into. Love that. And I love your own personal journey with anxiety and depression and just how that, you know, we talk about the wounded healer on the podcast a lot, listeners. The wounded healer is this quote that I use that, you know, you sort of can authentically lead others out of similar deserts because you know that desert. It's not theoretical. It's real. And so those of you, and I've felt a little bit of those feelings in my life, I've recognized that they help perhaps me develop Christ-like attributes that are helpful to help others. And so those of you that are in really tough deserts right now, um, you're the future wounded healers of tomorrow. And can one of the greatest gifts you can give to somebody is the gift Ben perhaps gave to that friend who was suicidal and others in his book. And that you're doing is to be able to authentically lead others out of the desert. Elder Holland certainly has been open about his journey with emotional health and his apostolic mission didn't decrease in my eyes. It only increased my love for him and, and prayers for him only increased as he was vulnerable about his own emotional health. And I think that done in appropriate ways is part of being humble perhaps, and part of being honest with who we are. And, but it allows us to go horizontal with our baptism covenants to help others in a way that's what I think is needed in society. Um, there's a lot of contrast in the book, Ben. As much as you talk about humility, you also talk about pride. You talk a lot about Jesus, but you spend time talking about Satan and Cain. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I, I think we we touched on this a bit when I, I talked about kind of the contrast between um, Jesus on the cross, you know, looking down and saying, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then the the opposite of that is is Cain when you know God said Cain you're you're on a bad track here why don't you repent sin lieth at the door uh his response to that which was kind of a, a threat from God to his own uh course was to double down and to kill his brother and to commit himself to to Satan and I think we see in order to understand light I think we do need to understand darkness uh like if if we're seeking the truth, I don't think there's a requirement to you know just just seek the truth that's happy and um, look away from from the truth about bad things. Uh, we we should understand the the beauty of of the restoration, and we should understand the Holocaust. We should understand all the you know as, as much truth as we can. The truth will will set us free. And there's a there's a quote I read a lot of psychology uh, in researching and writing this book because it just seemed um, necessary. I read a a few books by Carl Jung 
uh, there's a quote here that I think is useful here. He says, people will do anything, no matter how absurd, in order to avoid facing their own souls. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. So we, we don't become enlightened. We don't become true saints by uh, wishing away our own darkness or the darkness in the world, but by facing it head on um, and, and seeing our own dark places, seeing the dark places in the world. And, and um, again, that's what Christ did. Christ didn't shy away from evil or, or darkness. You know, he, he preached to the people after he was the, the people in spirit um, prison after he was killed. And he, you know, talked with sinners and, and did, ate dinner with them and um, never, never shied away from that. So I think uh, not that we should, you know, go down deep roads into the occult, but we should understand Cain and Satan. I think we have to understand Cain and Satan and, and evil in order to understand Jesus and, and goodness. Um, talk about being at Harvard Law School, and do you think that contributed to your fascination with pride and humility? I think it did. Um, if, if you've been to law school, it, it, it's incredibly competitive. Um, and this is Harvard. Harvard is, this is Harvard Law School, so it's not, you know, you're, right. well, you're not going to, yeah, you're not going to like me calling out that it's Harvard Law School, and it's not easy, listeners, to get into Harvard Law School would be my guess, and incredible accomplishment and i assume it's maybe perhaps been a dream of you to go to law school i don't know if harvard was your first choice but it's an incredible accomplishment so i would think that could naturally bring i've arrived sort of feelings as you walked onto campus the first day and so just yeah talk more about that yeah there there definitely was a sense of like i've i've made it everything else is going to be smooth sailing from here and this is going to um solve all my problems. So I, I would, that, that certainly hasn't been the case. I guess I would advise people to be careful of external goals that you think if you accomplish that thing, everything else will line up. Cause I, I just don't think life works that way. Um, I realized once I, once I got here that it was, it's hard to feel like you're the dumbest person in, in every room that you step into. And it's, it's really hard when your grade is dependent, not on how uh, well you know the material, but how much better you know the material than your classmates who are also very smart because wow. everything's, everything's graded on a curve. Wow. And so I think that really, um, that, that certainly contributed to this because I, I was just thinking all the time, like, man, this is just, this doesn't feel good to have my own success depend on uh, my relative position amongst my friends. Um, and it, it does kind of create this competitiveness that I think is a huge part of pride and, and going back to, you know, pride is lifting yourself up above others as you push them down and humility is trying to lift other people. Uh, that is anathema to law school, the, the humility part of it. And so it, it's been really interesting these last two years, my second and third years, because I was writing this book about humility. And I was thinking about humility all the time, but I still needed to, you know, go to class and apply for jobs and, um, try to get as good of grades as I could and everything. And it was, um, definitely felt pulled in, in different 
directions, but I've, I've come away just thinking it's so much, uh, it's so much more worth it. It's, it's so much more important to try to be like Christ than to try to climb any other ladder of success that, that depends on pushing other people down. And, and you don't need to play the game where you're, uh, you know, trying to strategize and trying to figure out how to game the system so that other people do worse. I think if you just, if you just do, uh, if you follow the commandments and, and you're trying to follow Christ and, and do your best, the rest will kind of take care of itself. And I, I, I don't agree that it's, it's always the case that if you put God first, he will bless you with material success. I actually think I probably would have done a lot. I am certain I would have done much better in law school if I hadn't written this book. Um, and if I had been more, more competitive, but it's like, that's, that's not really the game that I want to play because career success is not the most important thing to me. Um, and I, I also really don't like the idea of, well, this is the time in your life when you just put that first and, and then after you can come back to your, to your faith, because I just don't think, you know, I, I don't think it works that way. I think if, if you're committed to God and, and you're trying to follow Christ, you, you have an obligation to do so always. And you, you can't compartmentalize your life because you can't compartmentalize your soul trying trying to do that will just um drag you down i think it's a really good segment i think i mean a lot of people certainly culturally i've heard this before in my own life as i got advice is sort of take care of yourself and it's kind of about yourself and and when mm -hmm. you're my age you can kind of or earlier you can kind of give back and i think your generation saying no you know i want to i want to develop Christ-like attributes now and I want to bless the lives of other people's now and not just, and I can still do that and finish law school. And I love, I love that you wrote, Ben, I think you could have written this book obviously when you're 40 or 50 or 60, but I love that you wrote it during a law school. I love that you read, I love that you read psychology books during law school. I think that's just part of, insight into your personality i bet i don't know how many other harvard law students are reading psychology books and writing a book that really has nothing to do with law during law school but i think that's a type of the rest of your life and and an insight into your generation for the rest of us just the good you want to do right now and you want to create self-worth not about comparison to others but about your relate things that sometimes aren't in your control you're standing Final standing in law school may not be within your control, but your develop your ability to develop Christ-like attributes, have a relationship with Christ, um, develop more humility so you can bless the lives of others is within your control. And why wait? Why wait till you're later to do that? Why not start now? So right. I don't and know I, what I, voices I, were in your mind. I'd love to get you on the podcast when you were thinking of writing this book, because I bet you made a list of all the reasons you shouldn't write this book, um, including <laughs> yeah. like, what do I know about the subject? Or I'm supposed to be focused on law school or shouldn't people yep. with more gospel experience be writing this book? But I love you wrote it. Yeah, I, I definitely struggled with all of that mightily. <laughs> and uh, I, 
I, yeah, I definitely wouldn't have written it if I didn't think I was supposed to. And I think at the beginning I, I did see it as a, oh, this is, this is a good thing that I can, that I can do. This will be a, you know, a positive contribution that I can make to the world. And I still think that, but it's, it's kind of similar to the way I, I viewed my mission at the beginning versus at the end. I saw it as here's my time to serve. And at the end, I realized this was a, an incredible gift that heavenly father gave me to allow me to, to serve as a missionary. And I, I kind of view this the same way of what, what an incredible gift to, um, for whatever reason, feel pulled to, to spend so much time thinking about things that really matter, uh, during a time when I, you know, easily could have been, been led astray. I, I don't at all feel just, I just feel very grateful that that, that happened that way. Uh, talk about um, the role of empathy plays in humility. Yeah. Um, so if, if if we start again from from the principle that you shouldn't push someone else down in order to elevate yourself, um, and and we think kind of about the parable of the Good Samaritan, which I, I think is about learning to treat putative enemies as brothers and sisters. Um, I, I think that's, that's a big, that's a very important principle. You are, um, you can take, I, I think the, the, sorry, parable of the good Samaritan deals with race, you know, like a, a Samaritan versus an Israelite. But I think if we substitute whatever group we feel the most animosity towards, and put it there, it could be a political difference or um, whatever. Uh, I think that's the kind of empathy that at least I'm, I'm striving to develop, where a person that I deeply disagree with on a, some fundamental issue that matters a lot to me, if they are hurt, would I care enough about them to take them in and to help them, to heal them? Um, and, and that could be a metaphor for listening to their story, listening to their pain, um, trying to understand deeply what it's like to be that person, um, and, and be a, a source of love for them. Um, which I don't think is something that comes naturally to, to most of us, but there are thought experiments like that are, um, really useful who who's a person that could be in, in deep trouble and, and need a friend but i wouldn't be willing to help them because i hate that group and you know i don't think god wants us to feel that way towards other people uh, i often say like it it, it was coming from a, a very conservative community back home and then living for the last three years in a very liberal community at Harvard law school. Um, what I found that I didn't like is that there's often contempt for the other group. And in a lot of ways, I think contempt is worse than hatred because it's kind of a, you know, these people are so stupid or so, um, immoral. They don't even really deserve to be hated. And, uh, yeah, that, that's the opposite of, of empathy in a lot of ways. It's, it's that they're, they're so far gone that, you know, how could I ever 
put myself in in their shoes. Um, so, so trying to overcome that, I think, takes incredibly deep humility. I love that. And I think when you're talking of a Brene Brown quote, people are hard to hate, close up, move in. And I love the foundation you brought in of the parable of the Good Samaritan and, and the ability to, I think you were, used the word deeply, listen deeply to someone's story. And um, it's hard. And even I've, I've said this on the podcast quite a bit, listeners, but Zion to me used to be sameness because that's the way I grew up in a part of Salt Lake City where everybody was the same. Race, political party, um, sexual orientation, as far as I knew. Um, we all lived in the same zip code. And now I recognize Zion is the things you're describing. It's the things that bring us together as the same human family, but it's not necessarily sameness. It's not the same political party, but it's the ability to be unified in diversity, a quote from Elder Cook, to do what you're talking about doing is have the humility and the tools to then lift the hands of others. I think of the city of Enoch and they got translated. Um, the action thing we know they did is there was no poor among them. And so I think that, and so that just resonates with me a lot, Ben, and just your own personal journey and to do that. Um, I love, as I read your book, I read this um, two-sentence um, statement that is the conclusion of a longer paragraph. I'll just read it. You can explain it to our listeners. Greatness is temporary. Goodness is forever. Yeah. Um, I, I think we, we love to obsess about great women and men throughout history, you know, people who have made the history books and have had ideas and done things that um, are, are worth writing about. And I think if, if we're right about the fact that we're all sons and daughters of God and that we are eternal spirits, those history books are going to be gone. It's going to be like a flash in the pan. But goodness, kindness, humility, faithfulness, obedience. I think all those, all that can be encompassed, uh, can be captured by goodness. That's what makes up eternity. That's what makes everything worthwhile. And so again, I, I think I was thinking about that kind of thing because I was, I was put in this situation where, um, everybody around me was talking about greatness all the time. And I realized pretty quick that I'm, not close to, you know, one of the greatest, one of the smartest people here, but I can control my goodness to some degree. At least I can control being a little better in terms of goodness tomorrow than I am today. And not only can I control it, that's the only thing that really, that really matters. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think that's true. It's just a really powerful statement, Ben. And um, I like focusing on things that we can control in our lives and to create self-worth out of things that are within our control. And developing Christ-like uh -huh. attributes um, are within our control. Um, helping to lift the burdens of others are within our control. But greatness is probably not in our control. And greatness can be defined in a church setting as becoming a noted church leader 
or mm-hmm. in society and noted this or noted that in our professions or and right. that is good if that is part of somebody's journey but i like focusing on things that are in our control i do like one of our church leaders our church leaders generally don't talk in positive terms about pride which i agree with but some church leader along the line I can't remember who it was, talked about the appropriate pride of self-respect. And it's not comparative nature. It's not me comparing you. It's you, me. Be, it's, it's kind of back to your goodness. It's me being my personal best. And it's all about me and just the, my own journey. And I like that kind of pride. It's, but it's not comparative in nature. It doesn't bring other people down. It's not the things that you're helping us not do. Um, but I sure like the statement about goodness is forever. And and I think we both know there's tremendous people that we will never know about in this earth life that will never be on a on whatever media that causes um, us to be aware of the way they serve. Some of you are these very listeners that sometimes feel completely unseen um, and not supported in your unique life mission to bring goodness and hope and healing to others. But know that God knows who you are and the work you're doing and and hopefully you can feel at peace and and hopefully God at some point will take you to the top of a tall mountain and help you see what you've accomplished that may be invisible or not well seen by people around you. Um, talk, uh, you've written a lot of poems in this book, Ben. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's part of the law school curriculum to write poems. My guess <laughs> is it's not. Um, but I think this is part of you just developing attributes that are outside of um, curriculum or sort of, um, but will you read a poem for us and just kind of, um, talk about it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this one, the poems were the last things I, I wrote, I think, um, because I, I wanted something that could kind of capture chapters as we went that you could, if you wanted to just get a snapshot of where we were headed or, um, kind of capture the feeling of the of the chapter or the part of the book and I again I just like couldn't find any poems that I felt like really did that and I'd never really written poetry before so if, if people know about poetry and they they listen to this and they think that's terrible I would believe them because they're you know I don't I don't know anything about this but um I think it at least it at least captures uh an idea and then goes along with with what we've been talking about Take my mind and slow it down till I no longer want a crown. Make wealth and fame and short supply till I'm smaller than the needle's eye. Cut me down and break my heart. Just never from me, God, depart. Chasten my soul till I shall be in perfect harmony with thee. So the, I, I think it just goes along with the goodness, greatness idea that um well i'm it's it's a prayer really of of submitting to god's will of take take anything you want from me just just don't let me stray from you again um and a a big part of humility i think is is getting our priorities straight what comes first does god come first does serving others come first or do we come first our own status our own wealth our own fame Etc. And I, I think what I'm trying to capture with this poem of, you know, slow my mind down and and you know, make fame and wealth and short supply till I'm smaller than the needle's eye, etc. Is 
um, trying to voice a desire that uh, God comes first and, um, you know, he, he doesn't owe me anything else. I love that. Had you written poems before you wrote the book? I think I wrote some like Mother's Day poems. Like I would, uh, I would write cards for my mom or my dad, and um, but that was mostly when I was like twelve. So <laughs> mostly, mostly not. I think one of the other stories of this podcast, listeners, is just um, acting on the impressions you get to do things you never thought you'd do, or you don't even think you are qualified to do. Um, I, I, this, this is one of the remarkable parts of the story, Ben, is you, you know, it's not like you're an English major asked within a bunch of writing classes where you're becoming future authors. Um, this is a really interesting sort of like acting, just talk us again about just the spiritual impressions you felt impressed to do this. Yeah, that it's hard to put into words other than I, I would finish law school most days at, you know, seven or eight at night. And the, where my mind would go would be, I, I've got an idea for how to make this chapter better. I, I never really had to push myself to do it. It was just, a, it was inherently meaningful to me and just felt like that's, that's exactly what I should be doing. You know, uh, again, it kind of felt like a, a mission where it's not always super fun, but it was, um, I felt like I was where I was supposed to be doing what I was supposed to be doing. Um, were there times you and, came close to quitting and saying, this is just yeah. a bad idea. I mean, seriously, I'm writing a book in law school. I'm supposed to be in law school. Yeah. Let's really take care of law school do my very best. There's a later day to write a book. So tell us our listeners, because I just wonder if other people need, are in that spot sort of yeah. feeling the give up stage and what you kind of did to get through that. Yeah. I mean, I haven't talked about this much, but I'll, I'll share it on here. The fall semester of this year, when I was editing for you know, hours every day and, and taking a full course load. My, I had really bad anxiety and just felt super overworked. And uh, I sent drafts of the book to a few people and some of them liked it and some of them didn't. And that really, really rattled me. Um, I ended up having to see kind of a, a counselor for the first time and, and kind of work through my anxiety and everything. And I don't have a super maybe clear answer for everything other than like, again, deep down, I just felt like it was something I was supposed to do. And I had to kind of get over the pride of, well, this needs to be a big success or I'm not going to release it. Um, I, I think that was contributing to my anxiety as I had standards for myself that if I'm going to write a book, it's going to be a good book. And it took kind of having a, a panic attack and having, you know, not a, not a great semester and everything else to kind of come out of it and realize, you know what, like just thy will be done. I'm going to finish this and I'm going to try my best, but I'm not going to kill myself over it. I'm not going to, I don't mean that literally. I'm not going to work myself to death. 
over it and I'm, um, I'm just going to work as hard as I can and I'm going to, uh, do it till I feel like it's the best that I can make it and then let the cards fall where they may. And, you know, it hasn't been read by thousands of people and, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's not that special, but it's, it's been really, um, yeah, kind of cathartic to just be okay with it that I, that I did what I felt like God wanted me to do. Um, and maybe, maybe someday I'll, I'll have a conversation with God and he'll be like, yeah, that was just you, you know, you just wanted to write a book. I, I wasn't really sending you special promptings or whatever. And if that's the case, then that's, that's okay. Also, but, um, for whatever reason, I felt like it was, it was what I needed to do. And I, I finished it and there was something, um, fulfilling about that despite the, despite the hiccups. Ben, thanks for being honest about just that difficult semester when it all sort of came to a head. And, um, I love your, I love you sharing that it's real vulnerable and courageous, but it's part of who you are. I love what you said, thy will be done. And you're just going to leave this at the savior's feet and, I've written a book based on strong spiritual promptings. Um, it takes a ton of time to write a book. I mean, I just can't quite believe you did this during law school. And this wasn't just a casual sort of book listeners. This is a serious book with um, well-documented, tons of footnotes, well-researched. I mean, you could read the book and then you could read the footnotes and the footnotes are very <laughs> remarkable too. Um, as I've been looking, it's at Amazon. We'll post a link to the podcast to in the show notes. We'll put a link in Amazon when I post this. But the Amazon reviews are all five stars. So people that are reading it are loving it. And it's just a terrific book, listeners. I, I think it's even though you talk about it for younger people, I think it'll help all of us um, just do better and bring us together as the same human family. And these deep Christ-like principles that you're sharing with are very, very helpful. Um, you dedicated the book to your parents, Tom and Kim. Why was mm -hmm. that? I, I knew for sure if I ever wrote a book, I didn't really think I would, but if I ever wrote a book, I would, I would dedicate it to my parents. Um, I think the, the greatest blessing or certainly one of the greatest blessings of, of my life has been being raised by two people who, love me and believe in me. And I learn more and more as I get older, how um, special and, and rare that is. And that it's sad how, how rare that is. Um, but I, I'm just incredibly grateful for, for my parents. And I, I, there seems to be this strange thing in the world where you're not supposed to um, acknowledge all the help you've had. You know, you're, if, if you can paint a picture in a way that makes you look like you did it all yourself, then you should. And I, I couldn't, couldn't at all do that with a, with a straight face. I think, uh, the more I reflect on my life, I feel like I've been given, you know, tons and tons of advantages and, and head starts and probably haven't done all that great with all the advantages I've been, I've been given. And first and foremost is, is my parents, um, again, who, this, this theme kind of recurs in the book of, I, I love you and I believe in you. I, I think those are two things that every person deserves to hear. And that's, that's something that as um, disciples of Christ, something that if we can not just learn to say those words, but learn to love people and learn to believe in them, like, like good parents love and believe in their children, that can, 
make all the difference in, in someone's life certainly has made all the difference in mine. Um, and my, my parents are just wonderful people. I mean, you, you know, them, they're, um, I don't know, they're the best and I'm, I'm, I'm super grateful, grateful for them. They are the best. And your mom, Kim and my wife, Sheila have stayed really close over the years and we look forward to reconnecting. Those were wonderful years before you're born that we lived together as two young families just starting out with our individual kids and now to have all these kids and grandkids and seeing our kids do good things um i have to think this book as you're older and we talk will have opened doors for you beyond the book that you look back to some of your life story and some of the things you're able to do and both in your career and and the way you minister to people um, this book will have opened doors for you. Not only the book itself is going to bless people, but I bet it leads to more stuff that you won't maybe not realize at this point because you've done the book. Um, so I think the book is a really remarkable accomplishment. I love your tribute to your parents. Um, I have to give a shout out to the Longfellow Park YSA Ward because I, when I went to that ward back in March, I, in fact, I tweeted, I pulled up my tweet, um, the great talks given on prayer by Brother Hunt and Sister Elliot and the great order elders quorum lesson from Brother Jeffrey Wise. And I just have so much hope in the future of the church when I visit with members like you, go to a YSA ward, um, your understanding of the doctrine of our church, your commitment to do what's right, your commitment to live the burdens of others. You, to me, this is honoring your baptism covenants to uh, write a book that really helps lift the burdens of others. I love this quote from one of my favorite Institute teachers, S. Michael Wilcox. It's kind of um, helps me be open. In some matters, it's better to be intellectually uncertain rather than superficially sure. This will leave us a great deal to be certain why, about why maintaining the humility to learn. So I think that's a part of Ben's book is humility means the ability to learn. and and. And maybe that's a good thing for people that are out of the, quote, learning years and we're actually enrolled in college or enrolled in trade school, that we're continuing to be open to learn in our later years is we just are willing to consider new points of view with the goal to um, be able to lift the burdens of others, those that are on the, the parable, the Good Samaritan. Um, We'll look, we'll please check out this book, listeners, share it with others. I'll put it on social media, the link to Amazon. It'll be on the podcast notes. If you want to scroll down, share this podcast with others, but any final thoughts you want to share, Ben? I, I don't think so. I'm just uh, really grateful you, you had me on and um, grateful in advance. Anyone who uh, decides, decides to read the book. All right, listeners, thanks for joining us. This is Ben Lee from Massachusetts Zoom, Richard Austin from Salt Lake City, signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>